Share care, helping you. Get younger, get guidance, get better care, get smart, get fit. Radio MD presents Share Care Radio with Daria Long Gillespie, MD. We are back with ShareCare Radio. This is Dr. Daria, and we are starting an awesome new monthly segment. I'm bringing you to the studio with me every month. I have Dr. Sanjay Gupta. He is here, and we're going to discuss some of the hottest news stories. Now, I'm sure he needs no introduction, but he is the author of the New York Times bestselling books, Chasing Life and Cheating Death. He is CNN's chief medical correspondent. He's a practicing neurosurgeon. And as he's the dad of three young daughters, I may be asking him questions about my own toddler daughter later, since he's a complete veteran. So Sanjay, thank you so much for joining Thanks us. Thanks for having me. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. It would be really great for all thank of us. You. Now, you, know, you and I have been talking for a long time about the narcotic epidemic and the heroin epidemic, and it's not getting any better, is it? No, you know, it's it, what's really uh, fascinating here is that, uh, you know, we know that we've been giving too many pain pills in this country for a long time. Uh, you and I, when we went to medical school, remember pain was sort of the fifth vital sign. Mm-hmm. Patients always got asked about it and often walked out of the emergency room or a dentist's office with pain pills, yes. with narcotic pain pills, mm-hmm. which is crazy to think about. Yeah, I agree. And, and what has happened over the last several years has been interesting. There has been an acknowledgement of this. Mm-hmm. We take too many pills. We take 80% of the world's pain pills in the United States. Really? We are 5% of the world's population. We take 80% of the world's pain pills. And there started to be a little bit of a backlash mm-hmm. against this. Uh, pill mills have been shut down. Mm-hmm. It's much harder to prescribe narcotics than it used to be. Mm-hmm. And it started to make a difference. What has, what has happened even more recently is that people who were pain pill addicts and now cut off have started to turn to heroin. Mm-hmm. Heroin, which a lot of people don't realize, basically is the same active ingredients as pain pills. So that's yeah. what's happened over the last several years. Pain pill addiction, a little bit of regulation around that, and now a, a staggering number of heroin addicts. And that's so true. You're right. In the last couple of years, we have new databases I can now look up when a patient comes into the ER, see what you know narcotics and other controlled substances they've had filled. Right, right. So as a result, people have moved from that legitimate prescription to heroin. Yeah, and you know, I mean, I, I don't know about you, but I think as, as doctors, you know, you sort of think that that was the right thing to do to mm-hmm. try and decrease the, the, the number of people who were becoming addicted to pain pills mm-hmm. because it was a problem. It was now the number one cause of preventable death in the United States. Mm-hmm. And people realize that the number Staggering. one cause, more people die from overdoses to these types of medications than from car accidents every year. So something needed to be done, but I think what no one could have really predicted at the time was that people would start turning to heroin in mm-hmm. the numbers that they do. And these are not the typical sort of demographic. No, it's not. And that's what's so fascinating. It's not maybe what we in our own mind would expect. It's, it's, it's moms. Mm-hmm. It's moms. It's, it's people who are members of the church. It's mm-hmm. business people. It's professionals. Mm-hmm. It's people who you wouldn't really expect it at all. There's this um, footage that they have from just outside of Manchester, New Hampshire, where you see taillights of cars literally going into a school parking lot, dropping off kids at school, and then traveling from that area to an area where heroin is being sold. So these people would be literally in the mornings dropping off their kids at school, going and buying heroin, going home, mm-hmm. probably using their heroin, and then going picking up their kids in the afternoon. Uh, it, it's it's hard to imagine what yeah. life must be like, but that that is the reality for a lot of people. And you're right, it's unfathomable, but it's partly because it is such an addictive substance. It, it is so addictive. Um, 
you know, I remember again in medical school, I don't, I don't know about you, but I remember cocaine was, was something that people talked about a lot in mm-hmm. terms of the benchmark of addiction. Mm-hmm. And it's clearly a very addictive substance. Heroin seems to act, behave even differently yeah. in the brain. Mm-hmm. You know, we have natural endorphins in mm-hmm. our brains. Um, the runner's high that you get mm-hmm. after you exercise or something. Heroin seems to target those same sorts of receptors mm-hmm. in the brain. I mean, our brains were literally designed to basically be able to receive heroin. And yeah. it, and I think that's part of the reason it, it, it makes mm-hmm. it so addictive. And one of the things, the opposite that happens is when you go into withdrawal, all those wonderful feelings of happiness and feeling good, you get the exact opposite. And we have people coming in and they're miserable, they're depressed, they're in pain because their body is reading that as having pain. And it's all, it is a physical pain. Mm-hmm. You, you're quite right. You know, as part of uh, doing some reporting on this over the last several months, I spent a lot of time talking to people who had been heroin addicts. Mm-hmm. And, you know, first of all, it surprised me who they were. Mm-hmm. Right? Again, just people who you would never expect. And they would tell you about their heroin addiction. But also, exactly what you said, you, you take the heroin and it basically supplies all these really good feel good endorphins essentially into the brain and what does the brain do the brain says hey great i don't have to make this stuff anymore mm-hmm. because i'm getting it from somewhere else then as soon as you stop taking the heroin or whatever substance you are completely mm-hmm. depleted yeah. so you you have these incredible fluctuations from these really high highs mm-hmm to these nearly suicidal lows, as was described to me. So that is, again, that's, that's their lives. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's so true, and this is what we've seen people come into the emergency department. So what can people do you know, to, A, in themselves, avoid an addiction that, to narcotics that could then lead to heroin? And what do they do for their family, say you're a parent? Well, th- this, this cycle between the use of pain pills and then going to something like heroin has become a, a much more defined problem. We know, for example, that um, someone who's given a pain pill prescription, uh, from the time they've given that first prescription, and it's usually somebody in their um, 30s, late 20s, early 30s, the most common reason someone is given a pain pill prescription is for back pain, mm-hmm. and they get it usually from the emergency room doctor. Uh, it's about 18 months on average between that first prescription they receive and the time they may have an overdose. So 18 months. 18 months. And we know that if they're going to turn to heroin or something like that, it's going to happen somewhere within that time frame as well. Mm-hmm. So you, you take it, uh, you're, you're getting your refills on narcotics from various doctors, uh, that, that happens all the time. At mm-hmm. some point you can no longer get a refill because uh, the doctor has stopped giving you the medication right. and you go turn to heroin at that mm-hmm. point. So it's really, to your question, it's really that first inflection point, mm-hmm. that first time you're given a narcotics prescription to really ask yourself, and this is for consumers or anybody, to say, do I really need right. that? Are there any other alternatives? Mm-hmm. Uh, what else could possibly be done? Could, could there be a, a for example, uh, anti-inflammatories? Could it even be acupuncture or massage therapy, as you find out with some of these mm-hmm. patients who have had surgery? Uh, could there be medications that are actually injected into the body ahead of time? So uh, someone who had had shoulder operation, for example, mm-hmm. who was a pain pill addict, did not want to take these medications again, actually had his his area of his operation numbed, Mm -hmm. if you will, ahead of time. There's all sorts of different strategies, but I think the key is, do I really need this narcotics Mm -hmm. prescription? And then to keep in mind that I need to get off of this as as quickly as possible. No one is suggesting people be in pain. We, We know how to treat pain in this country. But narcotics simply don't work after a while, and we know that they can lead to these sorts of addictions. Mm -hmm. And I'll just tell you as well, Daria, what's amazing is that 
if, if you go buy an Oxycontin on the street, an 80 milligram Oxycontin on the street, it's about a dollar a milligram. So that's $80 mm. for a single pill. One you can buy a third of a gram for of heroin for 25 to $30. Mm-hmm. So if you're just doing the financial part of this and you're saying, you know, it's expensive and I need to still get my fix because right. I'm now an addict, mm-hmm. heroin is cheap, mm-hmm. remarkably and frighteningly cheap mm-hmm. on the street. And that's another part of the reason people are turning to it. So the key takeaway is that, you know, we use so many narcotics in the United States and it is a very slippery slope, very easy path that's based on your own brain chemistry to be, develop an addiction which leads to heroin. Yeah, I, I think I think you're you're absolutely right. It, 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 it's the odds are sort of stacked against us. Mm-hmm. You know, if you had to design a substance that was going to become easily addictive mm-hmm. and possibly cause these sorts of problems, you'd have de- designed essentially what mm-hmm. these products are. These these poppy derivative mm-hmm. products. These, these are opium yeah. products. Yes. All of them are the same thing. Hydrocodone, oxycodone, oxycontin, heroin. Mm-hmm. They're all basically the same thing. They're yeah. derivatives of opium. And and they do this thing to our brain yeah. that makes it really difficult to come back from. So I really want to, before you wrap up, for parents, you know, for the main, I think one of the main things is you know, most kids don't need a situation or are not in a situation where they really need narcotics. So I think parents can really, you know, patrol that as well. I I am just, uh, it's staggering to see how many children receive these sorts of prescriptions. Mm -hmm. Dental procedures is a big Mm -hmm. one. So you you asked about, you know, points where you can make a difference. Mm -hmm. You get a dental procedure, you almost never are going to need narcotics Mm -hmm. after that. Again, nothing to suggest that you should be in pain. There are ways to treat the pain. Mm -hmm. But giving narcotics to a child who's had a dental procedure, uh, that can be a real problem for them, not only at the time in Mm -hmm. terms of what the medications can do to them, suppress breathing, make Mm -hmm. it really difficult for them to eat food, feel really, really miserable, but also what it can do to them long term. Okay. And I see kids in the ER, they're tough. At the same adult who'll come in and need 80 narcotics, the kid's like, ah, get some Tylenol and they're good to go. So, And, and you know what? All around the world, people are, are, as it turns out, probably tougher than we are in this country. I mean, mm-hmm. if we're taking 80% of the world's pain pills, I promise you, we do not have 80% of the world's pain no. by any means. Yes. And there's so many other good alternatives. So that's always good to reiterate to people. Absolutely. So many good yeah. ones. I want to jump onto our next topic, which is really timely, and that is essentially gun control. And President Obama has his executive action on gun control, and that's specifically targeting mental health treatment. Talk to us about that and its efficacy and some other new ways of looking at this. Well, you you know, I think what's been discussed a lot lately around mental health, first Mm -hmm. of all, is that um, we just haven't done a very good job in this country mm-hmm. of being able to to take care of mental health. We yeah. talk about it. You know, I can tell you as a reporter, Daria, um, we almost always talk about mental health in the wake of some tragedy, mm-hmm. in the wake of some shooting. Yeah. And all that does is sort of reinforce this this myth that the, there's a connection between mental health and violence. We know, first of all, that that someone who is mentally ill is much more likely to be a victim of violence rather than a perpetrator of violence. Hmm. But because we only hear about it in in the wake of some tragedy, we keep associating these two things. But what the president has sort of talked about is this idea that er, the the expansion of background checks Mm -hmm. sort of goes on both ends. People who are are selling guns need to be authorized gun dealers and, Mm -hmm. and go through their own background checks. And people who are buying guns, if they have a history of something that's suggestive there might be a problem, that needs to be flagged before mm-hmm. someone can buy a gun. It's in some ways uh, the same sort of policies people have been talking about for a long time, but I think he has been really, really emphatic about getting this done now at this point. So it's kind of combining the two separate issues.
issues of the supply with someone's history, if that's mental health or other flags, red flags. Absolutely. And, and, you know, in theory, this is how it should have worked already. There should have already been checks and balances within the system to be able to tell uh, if someone is a, is selling guns, they should be listed as a, as a gun dealer. Mm -hmm. That's, that's what you are if you're selling guns, as opposed to having, you know, gun shows and things like that, where people could buy it in sort of these more secondary markets. But also, who's buying the gun? Mm -hmm. What are they going to be using it for? Are they going to be in possession of the gun themselves? Are they going to give it to somebody else? Is there any history of them doing that sort of thing? Mm-hmm. Is there any history of violence or, or something to suggest that they may not use good judgment mm-hmm. when, when, when using their gun? So all these sorts of things. But, but the, the idea that, that you can sort of predict a little bit of yeah. who's going to be, who's, where the problems or the red flags may arise is I think what this is intended to sort of you know, suss out. Okay. And will there be more research to try to figure out who is going to be more likely to be a pattern? Yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's, there's, there's all sorts of parallels, I think, between violence in general Mm -hmm. and the way that you and I probably look at medicine. Um, There's these fascinating studies that have actually charted the, the, the beginnings of violence in certain communities. Mm -hmm. And they find that you can almost look at it like you'd look at a bacteria in terms of a bacterial infection. Mm You see where the infection starts, and then you can predict how that bacteria is going to spread, how that infection is going to spread. And what they find is that violence behaves the same way. You can find where a violent episode may take place in a community and then start to predict where that violence is going to go from there. Mm -hmm. Who who is going to behave violently? Where is that violent behavior going to take place? And you can start to essentially give an antibiotic for violence. Mm -hmm. I love that as a metaphor. I think it's it's so good. And it, it, it makes sense. We know that both good and bad behaviors are contagious. Yes. You see one person doing it. Yeah, there, there, there was a it was a sort of fascinating situation in, in Baltimore after what happened with Freddie Gray. There was a lot of violence in the city, as, as you a lot of people saw. And these areas where they had these what, what they call interrupters mm-hmm. of violence. Um, think of that as the antibiotic of violence. You had these square blocks where there was essentially no violent episodes, despite the fact that they were surrounded by incredible violence, mm-hmm. lootings, fires, uh, you know, assaults, all sorts of things. And within these areas where they could sort of predict, okay, here's how the violence will enter this community. Here's where we can essentially stop it, interrupt it. It works. Mm-hmm. So you, you can predict this to a certain extent. And tell us more about those interrupters, because I've seen those in a couple of cities, and it's fascinating. It, it is fascinating. They're, they've been in Chicago. They've mm-hmm. been in Baltimore. Um, Gary Slutkin is the is the researcher who's who's an, he's an infectious disease mm-hmm. doctor. The tuberculosis. Tuberculosis, in HIV, yes. AIDS. Yeah, and he's the one who really started to chart these patterns. First of all. Oftentimes, the interrupters are people who have had uh, a history of violence themselves. Mm-hmm. They've been people who have uh, uh, even been in prison at one time or another, but they are members of the community. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're rehabilitated now, and they're trying to do their part to try and stop violence in their communities. And because they know the community well, because they, they can understand the patterns mm-hmm. of violence, where it's going to jump from one place to another, they're, they're particularly good and adept at being able to interrupt that. So sometimes it is dangerous work, as yeah, uh, Slutkin sure. sort of described, but incredibly effective. Again, if you look at Chicago right now with, with the amount of gun violence, and look at some of the communities where interrupters exist. Baltimore, as I mentioned, after the Freddie Gray verdict. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's incredible to see how you can really make a difference without guns, without any sort of mm-hmm. martial law, not even talking about law enforcement. You're talking about community members yeah. 
who understand the contagion of violence, yeah. gun violence, and all sorts of violence. And you're right, they're not law, law enforcement members. They're often people who are previously a member of a gang and known by the people who would otherwise want to be violent, and they can get in there and intercede. That's right, and, 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 and interceding can be a relatively simple thing. It doesn't have to be some prolonged counseling session. Mm -hmm. It's basically predicting where the violence is going to go and stopping it at a really pivotal moment. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you have seconds in which to act to prevent a violent episode that will then lead to five more violent episodes, right. which will lead to 50 more violent episodes. Yeah, if you can stop that one inflection point, oftentimes you can prevent a lot of violence in a community. I think that it's such a fascinating exercise that they're doing. And it seems to really work in those places that have high levels of violence you know it's high touch high amount of resources but also very effective what about what do you that still doesn't get to the ones that may be an isolated mm. you know mass shooting that we have seen in various school ones how do you do that can you apply that same theory well it's 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 if you look at uh, adam lanza for example mm -hmm. in newtown massachusetts so you're talking about a community that's you know it's not known for being a violent community whatsoever yeah, you wouldn't have had an interceptor there interrupter there. You, you would not have had an interceptor there in terms of violent behavior mm -hmm. the question really gets back to someone like with an adam lanza and i think a lot of other people out there the issue of mental health mm -hmm. and and again it, i i just want to make clear and i know you do all the time as well that this isn't to stigmatize people with mental health. There, there's a lot, no. Most people are going to be victims as opposed to perpetrators of crime. But, but with someone like an Adam Lanza, when you go back and look at his life, when you go back and look at uh, other people's lives as well, there may have been signs or clues there that the person needed some sort of help. Mm -hmm. It's not to suggest that we knew for sure Adam Lanza was going to become a mass shooter, yeah. but that he needed help. Everybody that talked about him in retrospect described that loner kid who, mm -hmm. who did not know anybody, didn't interact. Sometimes they say he was a little odd, he was awkward, whatever it may be. Here's the problem, Daria, I think, and it's heartbreaking to think about. If you're a parent of a child like that and you're worried about your kid, what do you do? Yeah. Who do you call? Mm -hmm. Who do you call? You're going to call the police, which is what most parents have to do. You are literally in a position in this country, if you're worried about your child having mental illness, that the, pe the people that you call end up being law enforcement and you end up, as a parent, being the reason that your kids go to prison. So in our last 30 seconds, what do parents do in that Well, I, look, this is, I think, in some ways a, a question for us as a country overall. Prisons cannot be the biggest repositories mm -hmm. of people with mental illness mm -hmm. in this country, but they are. We, we have talked about parity mm -hmm. when it comes to mental health, saying we're going to treat this like we treat physical illness, but we're not right, right now. So it's in part a stigma issue, but it's also largely a resource issue. Yes. We don't have enough mental health beds. So parents, you know, I think recognize the signs and symptoms, certainly try and do the best you can. But I think the, the, the messages for the country as a whole to, to really make sure that we have the resources for these kids and adults yeah. that, are, that are struggling. And make that commitment if we want to make it a safer place. Yeah. Sanjay, thank you so much. All of our listeners, you can check out Sanjay on the CNN website, cnn.com backslash profiles backslash Sanjay Gupta profile. Follow him on Facebook at Dr. Sanjay Gupta and order his books, Chasing Life, Cheating Death, and Monday Morning on Amazon. Thanks for listening. This is Dr. Daria. Follow me at Dr. Daria. Listen to Share Care Radio. Stay well. <laughs>